and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. In the last several months, I've had a number of founders on the podcast building companies to drive innovation in how we work. A timely issue given pre-COVID-19, one in four Americans lived in locations with little or no economic growth. And meanwhile, tens of millions of city dwellers are increasingly squeezed by rising costs of living. This has only been exacerbated by a global pandemic. I was excited to chat this week with Sean Linehan, co-founder and CEO of Placement, to further that dialogue. Placement's mission, simply put, is to unlock the earning potential of millions of Americans. Placement's the modern-day talent agent, enabling individuals to land opportunities in fast-growing, affordable cities or in remote roles. By reducing friction and eliminating the barriers to geographic mobility, Placement is shifting who captures the value in the country's economic growth. We talked on about a lot of topics in this episode. Location arbitrage, flipping the funnel, what at-scale data tells us about economic mobility, democratizing access and process to landing higher-paying jobs, engineering momentum, and the decision to solely focus on placement versus other things like admissions and training. Welcome, Sean. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. So, Sean, excited to have you on the show today to talk about you know, placement, your thoughts on the future of work, and you know, how you're thinking about COVID-19. But before we dive in too deeply, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey to founding placement. Yeah. So I grew up in a city in the county of San Bernardino, California, which is a working class enclave outside of Los Angeles County. It really is the sort of industrial center that feeds LA, the fulfillment centers, the railroad infrastructure, that type of thing. I went from there to Berkeley. I was fortunate enough to got to attend there. At Berkeley, I studied, formerly I studied business, but I spent the entire time there building software products. I worked for a uh, early D2C company called Modify Watches as their director of technology. So I worked full-time building e-commerce software, doing very early social media marketing, uh, digital ad optimization, that type of thing to to get that company off the ground. I sort of got addicted to startups at that point. I loved the early stage creation, you know, the full stack approach of writing software, of doing marketing, of getting my hands dirty in all the different disciplines. And from there, I've just sort of been hooked. So after graduating uh, college, I, I joined a small niche company called Flexport. Hmm. It was about 20 people, a uh, seed stage company, doing something that nobody had ever heard of called freight forwarding. Uh, they were also a customs broker, which, as all my friends told me, was uh, extremely boring. Um, but yeah, I joined there as a software engineer uh, in 2014. The company went on to be quite successful. Uh, I very quickly, after joining the firm, shifted to, to be a product manager. Uh, I was the second product manager and then became the head of product and ultimately built out the product management team from um, 1 to 15. I helped grow the design team. Ultimately, that team reported into me, so I grew the design team up to 15 people. In my time there, we went from, you know, basically $1 million in companies in the company's lifetime cumulative revenue to a half a billion dollars annually. Um, so that company was really successful. I left that in late 2018 and just took some time off. And during that time, I spent that time really trying to figure out what was my passion? Where was I most excited uh, to dedicate the next 10 years of my life to working on? And who did I want to work on that with? There was one problem in particular that stood out to me. I've always been a bit of an econ dork. I love the intersection between data and mathematics and social phenomena. And so econ sort of is the place where that happens. It's not an exact science, but it it is quite an interesting field of study. And I had been studying census data and found that there was some very interesting migration patterns happening in America. First and foremost, there was a a large exodus out of California and New York. But also, if you look over a longer term time period, there was a massive reduction in migration, uh, interstate migration uh, over the long arc of history. I then decided to do even more research and and found that there were large, uh, basically arbitrage opportunities uh, associated with 
interstate migration. So if you take the same person with the same skills and just move them across the country, on average, uh, there, or at least there exists trades where on average that person risklessly makes more money on a cost of living adjusted basis. So that was sort of the, the sort of top-down uh, economic observation that I had made. Um, I tapped a, a woman named Katie Kent, who I worked with at Flexport. She was on the product management team there and told her about this idea. I was thinking, you know, let's, let's help pay, let's help finance people's lives to, to move across the country and get better jobs and better uh, economies, basically. And she said, oh, we can do so much better than just, you know, get them that little arbitrage. Let's also coach them through on how to get the job, help you know, run the process for them, and we can get them massive increases in their, in their incomes. And but, so Katie, basically, before uh, Flexport, she had worked as the, the head of outcomes for Galvanize. Galvanize was a big, it is a big boot camp player. They, they recently got acquired. So she, she had a ton of experience in the getting people jobs side of the boot camp business. And yeah, combined, basically combining her hands-on experience getting people jobs and the observation that I had made around the geographic arbitrage, we combined those two things together and, and just got started. You know, we, we really thought that we were probably the best founding team in the world to work on this because we had had such in-depth experience both in the bootcamp business with Katie's experience and in building operationally complex, high-touch products at Flexport. And we really think that it's the intersection of those two skills that is going to ultimately drive tremendous success in, in this type of business. Well, and it's really interesting too, because in addition to kind of having that understanding of, of nuanced, you know, skill as well as kind of the operational complexity, there's a whole bunch of, you know, underlying macro trends that are really tailwinds for you guys, right? And you, you've talked about some of them before, but certainly from my observations, you know, in the space, you know, there's elements like a, you know, the, the just crushing student debt load, you know, folks are facing. Second piece is, you know, significant amounts of job turnover for millennials and Gen Z's. Folks are, you know, folks are increasing mobility between jobs. Um, our generation and the generation below is certainly searching more for, you know, fulfillment, mission-driven work. Um, there's obviously the social kind of pipes and infrastructure to empower, you know, interaction. And, you know, cities are becoming extraordinarily expensive to, to your last point around geo-arbitrage. And I actually think there's a sixth post-COVID which is, you know, wellness and safety uh, and, and the question mark of that in combined spaces. So when you think of kind of all of these underlying tailwinds, how do you think about, you know, what's going on right now in, in empowering placement and why it's the right time, you know, for a product and company in this space? We're in the middle of a fundamental shift in the American economy. It's not the first shift. It's one of many. Uh, the sort of first economy of America was the agricultural economy that shifted into the industrial economy, which shifted into the service economy. And now we're shifting into the knowledge economy. And we're really, I mean, it's you know, 30, 40% of Americans are working in that uh, space. And so it, we're, we're sort of at the, the big swell of the knowledge economy. With each of these shifts, there are fundamental changes in the structure of work in the geography of work, within the relationship between employer and employee. And the implications of that transition from sort of service work into the full-fledged knowledge economy, a lot of the stuff that you, that you mentioned are encapsulated in that. The biggest thing for me is uh, thinking about what is the relationship between company and firm, or company and employee, rather, and how has that structure shifted? So the, one of them, you mentioned it, is the, the fact that people are not particularly loyal to their employers, right? And employers aren't particularly loyal to their employees. The, the expected relationship is not one of lifetime or even near lifetime employment. It's one of, as Reed Hoffman calls, more of a tour of duty approach, where you're there for one to five years, depending on your role, depending on your seniority. And during that period, you potentially accumulate some ownership, you deploy your expertise, you're a specialist, and you know you help drive value for the business, but you then expect to move on. 
the really interesting thing is that in making that sort of uh, contract shift from lifetime employment to, to short-term tours of duty, all of a sudden, people are finding themselves doing more job searches than they ever have had to in the sort of trailing 100 years. People didn't used to have to do this type of thing. And doing a job search is extremely hard, right? It's emotionally difficult. It requires a lot of effort. And it also requires a lot of expertise that most people don't have. There are people, I'm certain that the, your, you and your listeners know some people like this, who are really, really good at getting jobs. Those people wind up working at the best companies, making huge amounts of money, ultimately having very successful careers. But the interesting thing is that the skill of being good at getting good jobs and running that process is only loosely correlated to being good at actually doing the job itself. So our observation, the biggest one, was basically saying, look, like, let's centralize that skill. Let us become experts at knowing how to run the best job search at how to present yourself in the way that gets you the best jobs. And you just focus on being great at doing the work, right? So you let us help get you the same type of outcomes as the people that you know that are the best in the world at doing this. And yeah, I think that that probably is the biggest thing. We think about it sort of as filling a role that the labor unions have, have left. So labor unions no longer make that much sense in the modern era. Because again, this lack of lifetime employment, um, the sort of easy ability for employees to jump between firms make for the collective bargaining thing that, that unions historically have hung their hat on just less relevant. Um, but there is a lot of things that unions brought to the table that people no longer have. They no longer have that community. They no longer have that external voice that understands the market and fights for labor. Um, and they no longer have anybody to sort of guide them through these processes. So yeah, the, the labor union, that structure, that entity doesn't make sense in the modern day, uh, at least not as a sort of entire thing. But there are a lot of aspects of what they, they did that, that should come. Uh, and we're sort of trying to bring that set of that, that sort of bundle of value back into the world. Well, it's interesting the way you frame it, Sean, because, you know, even when, when you kind of think of the tagline of the business, right, you guys say, you know, placement is the talent agent for job seekers. And, and I really like that analogy and that word choice. Um, you were just, you know, you were talking a bit about it, but talk a little bit about kind of the agent model and specifically why that's the relationship to talent in, in terms of how you guys are thinking about it. Yeah, so we are very different from a lot of other people that are in the talent space. Most people in the talent space try to monetize their businesses on the employer side. So they charge employers placement fees. And the net result of that is that the companies are ultimately misaligned with the, with the talent themselves. That doesn't mean that it's impossible for them to drive outcomes. But what it does mean is that they can't deeply invest in people. They have to invest in corporate relationships. And so the, the sort of get paid by the company approach incentivizes people in the talent space to uh, start with a rec and churn and burn through candidates until they find the right one for the rec. We instead take an opposite approach. We start with the person and churn and burn through recs until we find the right one for the candidate. So as their agent, we basically are looking at what they can do and what they would like to do, both in terms of where would they like to do it what types of companies are they interested in, what size company, what industry, so on and so forth. And we're playing matchmaker between what they can do and who desires the things that they can do. The other part of it is that we're then helping coach them through to figuring out how can they best present themselves and prepare to get the jobs that they actually want. So our other part of this really is that we, we take a long-term approach to people's career. So we're not just like a one-and-done placement company. We don't expect to work with somebody one time and then just shoo them off and, and never talk to them again. Because people are moving jobs so frequently, we think that we can add value again and again and again during people's careers. Um, this is very different than some of the things that 
other uh, other companies are trying to do. Uh, some companies are trying to do coaching. The coaching thing is interesting. Uh, I think that it's a, a very valuable business, but a lot of the coaching is about this sort of amorphous. You know, business coaching really is just like a rebranding of you know, corporate provided uh, therapy. It's you know therapy that you complain about your your boss instead of your you know significant other, um, which is fine. I think that that's you know super uh, valuable in the world, but we're we're not trying to do that sort of generally unquantifiable you know feel good coaching. We're we're really focused on specific outcomes and objectives, right? So your talent agent only makes money when you make money. And so we've aligned ourselves with your financial incentives. Of course, it, it's not the only thing we care about. It's not the only thing that you care about. Most people care more about life satisfaction. They care about ability to, to grow and learn. Uh, they care about potentially flexibility around the workplace. We care about all those things in as much as our customers do. Um, but we align ourselves specifically to the economic outcome. And so you've got four kind of pillars of the way, you know, that you work with, with candidates or folks, right? So evaluate, prepare, interview, close. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, how, um, how each of those pillars work, right? Um, especially with the thought process of kind of this continual loop of not just having a one-off relationship, but, you know, continuing to serve as a talent agent, you know, for, for the folks that you work with. And then specifically touch on, you know, how do you plan to scale, right? Or what's the thinking around scaling the high touch aspect of being an agent? Because obviously, you know, there's there's elements where tech fits really well and really cleanly into this space. Um, and then there's gaps that need to be overcome, right? So talk talk a little bit more about the pillars and then talk about kind of the thesis of how, you know, what tech does well and, and where the, the gaps to augment. For the, for the listeners, the EPIC or EPIC process is... <laughs> That's the, sort of, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's sort of our core program that we offer. The evaluate phase is really sitting down with somebody and figuring out what job titles are you targeting? What regions are you targeting? What seniority are you targeting? What industries? Really figuring out what are they interested in? And we help guide them on that decision-making process using a huge amount of data. So I'm glad that you asked these two questions together because they, they really go together. What we're building is not a human-driven or 100% human-driven like body shop. We're not building a consulting company or a, a recruiting agency for uh, focused on consumers. We really are building a platform for enabling talent agents to guide their customers and um, get people the, the best outcomes as fast as possible. Uh, those talent agents all work for us today. And there's a, there's a version of the future where there's sort of a, a network outside of the corporate envelope as well. But what, what, what we do specifically is we're gathering immense amounts of data. So we have uh, different data acquisition sources, acquiring job listings from every single place we can find on the internet. We're doing uh, NLP on those job listings to suss out what are what skills are these jobs asking for, what seniority are these jobs asking for, um, and if there's compensation information available in them, we're also extracting that. So we're building a real-time source and real-time view of what skills are worth what amount in the marketplace right now. And so with that, oh, of course, also in which places and you know what's the cost of living in those places, sort of the, the, the bread and butter. Um, so the evaluate phase, we're really bringing to bear all of that data to help inform what direction people should be taking their careers. Um, if somebody wants to take their career in a, in a direction, you know, they discover during this process that they want to go one way and we don't think that we can help them go that way. We basically just say, well, you know, you're welcome to, to go do that. Um, we're not going to be able to assist you in doing that, but at least you now have all this, this data and insight to be able to run that process better yourself. Uh, so that's the E assuming somebody does do a part of the, or take a career path that we can help with, we then move them on to the prepare phase. And the prepare phase, you can think of really as being democratizing the elite institution's knowledge about how to best present yourself. So I went to Berkeley. Berkeley really just hammered into my brain how I should be telling my story, how to make my resume look good, my online presence look good, how to really make people who are in positions of authority trust me. 
Uh, if you went to any top tier institution, you got that same knowledge drilled into your brain. But if you didn't go to a top tier institution, you likely got really bad advice. Um, the average career center at a university has a discretionary budget of $50,000 per year. Mm. $50,000 per year for the entire career center. These in, the, most institutions are not investing in delivering great outcomes for the people that are going through their institutions. Um, so we're really stepping in and saying, look, you might have a degree. Most of our customers have a degree, but you probably didn't learn the things that you actually need to learn to best conduct the best job search. So we, during the prepare phase, get their resume nice and tidied. We get their LinkedIn looking good. We also do practice interviews with them. Um, and there's a bunch of tech that we've built around doing that. So we have an app that uh, customers can use to practice interviews and get feedback from their, their talent agents asynchronously. So both can sort of do that work when it's best convenient for them. Um, and really our goal in that phase is to get people to ace the phone screens and start to ace the on-site interviews. When we think that they are ready to go, we move them on to the interview phase. The interview phase, again, leverages that massive uh, data acquisition infrastructure I mentioned. So that's all real time. So in real time, we're able to basically filter through the, you know, we, I think we're acquiring 100,000 new job listings per day or per week right now. So we're acquiring 100,000 job listings per week. We're filtering through all of those to pull out the ones that are most relevant to our customers' skills and interests and presenting them with a very short list of opportunities that we think are the best fit for their desires. Uh, today, that's intermediated by their agent. So their agent then you know, looks at a short list and makes an even shorter list. And in this way, this is a total transformation of how the job search process works. Usually, you have to have you know, 10 saved searches across all these different geographies, different aggregators. Um, and you're, you're sort of scrolling through hundreds of job uh, feeds and, and looking at them all and trying to figure out, am I a fit? You're looking mostly at things that you're not a fit for, so it's extremely discouraging. When you work with placement, you just get like three to five new opportunities per day that are perfect for you until you're hired. And so beyond that, we also then connect you through to the employer where we have relationships or we help coach you through on how to get the best um, conversion rates uh, if we don't have that relationship. And all of this is managed again through an app. So you get, you basically play Tinder for jobs on a daily basis, you like swipe through like 10 opportunities that we queue up for you of the ones that are uh, a good fit for you. We then have, again, the product guides you through exactly what you should be doing to maximize your throughput through the uh, funnel. And your agent is there all along to guide you. So you can chat with them in the app. You can talk to them when you need to. And yeah, during the interview phase, our goal is to get you as many interviews as possible and get, or, or as many interviews as is desirable. Some people can literally get too many. <laughs> so we get you as many interviews as desirable. Um, the, 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 the close process is all about negotiation. So you assume eventually you get a, a job offer. How much negotiating should you do? How do you do the negotiation? What dimensions should you be negotiating? We coach our customers through all of these things. And, you know, in some cases, the close process can get people signing bonuses that far exceed our payment cap, or we can get them salary increases that far exceed our entire fee. So, um, yeah, the close process is a really big deal. It's also during this period where if they're relocating, we, we help provide guidance on, on that side of things. Not all of our customers relocate, not all of our customers need our help, but we're there for them if they do. So that's the process. We, we're, we're injecting product and engineering and data science in all the places where we don't think that human empathy and judgment matters. Any place where we think that it's rote or that there would, you know, the best judgment comes from analyzing all of the data, that's software. In the places where it's emotional or it's intuitive or it requires empathy, that's where the agent comes in. And so we think that we can scale that. Uh, we think that there are a lot of people who are capable of, of filling that role. We think there are a lot of people who either on a full-time or a part-time basis are excited about coaching the next generation of talent through and up their career ladders. And we think that we can build a platform that enables people that want to do that to, to help as, as many people as efficiently as possible. So once this gets to scale, 
you know, it, it gets really interesting, right? And, and there's a lot of byproducts you can think about at scale, you know, certainly a, a kind of immediate, uh, immediate item that comes into my, my head is once you have enough data, once you have enough candidates placed, you know, of course, you can get into the world of, you know, proactive suggestions, hey, if you pick up, you know, X skill, right, you could get Y job, or you could increase your probability by, you know, Z amount. But, but at a macro level, you have a pretty interesting, there's pretty interesting potential for, for mapping talent allocation. Talk about when you kind of, when you think of the company really at scale and kind of think of those byproducts that can come as a function of scale, where do you get excited or where does your head go? I, I think you mentioned some of the, the bigger obvious ones, which is right now it's pretty clear that there is a misallocation of talent across the country geographically, as well as a, a misguided uh, the talent allocation process with respect to skills, right? So here's the way that I really think about it. When you get into a car accident, you look at your car and you go, wow, that's awful. What do I do? You call Geico or Allstate or whoever it is that does your auto insurance. And you say, hi, I have crashed my car. I am freaking out. Please help me. And they say, great. Are you safe? Good. Okay. Great. Where's the damage? Okay. Send us a picture. Cool. We got you scheduled for a body shop appointment at 1 p.m. next Tuesday. All you got to do is drop it off. And you say, wow, thank you. That was so easy. Um, it was stressful. It could have been really, really bad. In the past, it wasn't this good, but competition has made it really great. When you lose your job or when you have a problem with your boss, who do you call? Your mom? You know, your, your significant other, your friend, most people don't have a person to call. We're building that person to call, right? And so what we'd really like to have happen is that when somebody has that little thought that says, I think I'm ready for the next thing, that they don't sit on their hands for 12 months or 18 months or five years because they're not sure what to do. They just call or they text us or they use our app and we say, hey, look, you actually totally are underpaid you totally could make way more money. Click this button and we'll help you do it. And that's ultimately what we'd like to build. Talk about talk a little bit more about so let's let's continue on that thread, right? Because that's that starts to be really interesting. One of the things that I find really interesting about the way you guys are thinking about placement, Sean, is they're big Latin assumptions, you know, that you're fundamentally shifting. So one you've talked about before, and I'll throw it out as an example. And I'd love to hear others that you have in your mind, you know, when you think about the business. You know, but one example you know, you've touched on before is this idea of um, we have kind of two very large you know, mass mobility events in a normal kind of K through 12 education uh, college you know, type process, right? Which is typically a lot of folks are moving pre-college, right? To the college that they're actually moving to. And then they're moving to a job when they graduate from college. Um, but in many ways, you guys are engineering kind of a third moment in time, right? And so that's that's one example I, I capture on, you know, to potentially surface other examples, you know, based on the way you think about it. But what are when you think about kind of those big fundamental assumptions that underlie just the way we think about jobs and the, and the nature of work, what, what are kind of the big bucket items that you look at and you say, you know, placement is fundamentally shifting? You know, a big one for us is the assumption that people really care deeply about being in the exact same city as their extended family. Mm -hmm. I think that we're much more likely to see a world where, and to be fair, we already are partially in that world where people are in different places for different life stages. And the technology exists to be able to form and maintain relationships at a distance. So I know that in the COVID-19 uh, context, this is going to sound uh, anachronistic, at least momentarily, but you can very easily communicate via apps like Zoom or House Party or FaceTime so that you can have good relationships at a distance. And the second that you want to see somebody at a more deeper level, you can just jump on a plane, right? And planes are relatively less expensive than they used to be. Uh, they are very fast, at least relatively very fast such that you can live a hop, skip, or a jump away. You can you know, live one flight, two flights, three flights away. You can live one flight, three, or one hour flight, a three hour flight, or a seven hour flight away, and be relatively close to your family despite being physically very far away. So that I think is one 
big important trend. So as a result, I think that people will be more amenable to being geographically mobile. Uh, as a result, you know, I think that you'll see places like small town America um, shift. I don't think you're going to, you know, here's a somewhat controversial opinion that I hold, which is that a lot of groups are focused on answering the question, how do we save dying cities? I unfortunately think that that, at least as a large scale policy, is a losing game because a city only exists to serve a purpose. People didn't just plant a flag in a random place and say, you know, I'm calling this home. Uh, all of our modern cities were based around some particular valuable resource that was either engineered, engineered there by the government in the case of a lot of universities or was sort of the byproduct of, of just geography, right? Like there was oil or there was a river or there was a port or something of that nature. And, you know, when the economically viable thing that drives the city goes away, well, so do the jobs and eventually so does the city, right? And so instead of trying to save old cities, I think what we're likely to see is see those cities deplete for people that can't move, the elderly, the disabled, or people who do have one of the few economically viable jobs left in that city. I think you might see something closer to what you see immigrants do, which is the young leave. They go to places where a lot more money can be made and they send money home. Where if you live in San Francisco, the leftover money that you have after all of your expenses, if you're a software engineer, well, you can pay for your parents' entire life if you need to. And so all of a sudden you have this sort of uh, domestic remittance situation that I think that, that you'll have. So yeah, I think that these are some of the assumptions around place. When it comes to the uh, overall structure of the, the workplace, again, I mean, I think that people are, are far less loyal. I don't think that's a problem. I think in fact, it's a good thing. The uh, When you increase liquidity in the labor market, particularly in cities, particularly in knowledge work, what you do is you generate knowledge spillovers between firms, right? So firms can allocate talent um, in real time, meaning that they can size up and size down teams based on what they actually need to do. And they don't expect to have to hold that talent inside their corporate envelope for all of eternity. That would be very expensive. That would make the decision to hire somebody very expensive. When people can move with relatively low friction between firms, all of a sudden companies can hire and uh, downsize without it being emotionally troublesome, right? I think that that actually is a very good thing on both sides is that ability to uh, increase the rapidity of, of change between jobs. And I think that people are, you know, kind of getting used to it. Partly, par partially one of the reasons why I think people in, in Silicon Valley change jobs uh, so much as well is because the cultures between firms have relatively homogenized, right? So it's sort of like Google culture at every single company with just small little tweaks. And so it's, you know, you're not ramping up into a, a completely brand new culture when you switch between tech companies. You're sort of ramping into just like a small variant tweak of it, which is, again, good for um, innovation. You've got a lot of companies focusing on this liquidity piece that you were talking about, right? And really unlocking supply. Um, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started the podcast, but, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a commonality in terms of kind of high-level philosophy, but there's a very, you know, differentiated focus on, um, you know, actual implementation or execution. So when, when I think about liquidity in the marketplace, you know, I think about, you know, you've certainly got the boot camp space, you've got these vertical labor marketplaces, either focused on a specific type of supply, right? Veterans, working moms, et cetera. You've got marketplaces focused on specific skills. You've got uh, companies that are focused on kind of the admissions or entry point into boot camps. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of different, you know, there's a lot of different kind of outputs or execution of that fundamental philosophy of increasing liquidity in the marketplace. When you think about where placement fits, you know, into this scheme, into this schema, how, how do you think about it? Mm-hmm. There are some jobs that require regulatory knowledge or other types of extreme specialization, like nurses are a good example. Uh, the veteran business, I think, is a good example. It's just such a deep niche. It's a big, deep niche. And when I say niche, I don't mean to minimize it. These are massive, massive industries. Those make a lot of sense to be independent vertical marketplaces. Uh, you know, like there's uh, like traveling nurse companies that do that do that, and then you have Shift. Of course, it's doing the veteran the veteran side of things. Um, 
we're really focused on jobs that are slightly less either regulated or have more straightforward um, ability to transfer between firms, right? Transitioning from the military, for example, uh, there's a problem of legibility. Employers aren't sure what to make of veterans. And so Shift goes out and attempts to help them figure that out. There's also like a big transitional, um, a big transition for the, the talent themselves. What we really focus on is, is not these big transformational jumps in the type of work you're doing. We're not so good at career changers, right? I think universities are good at career, at preparing someone for a career change. Um, a shift is good at preparing someone for a career change. We're really focused on helping people make that next rational decision as seamless as possible, as fast as possible, without having to incur all of the emotional dread and time sink that goes into a job search process. So we're really this horizontal layer that is working on all of the, the roles that are less specialized, that are, that are you know, not deeply complex. Um, so that's sort of where we fit in. When I think about the boot camp space, I think that that's really interesting because right now, every boot camp that, that wants to you know, be successful, frankly, has to be really good at placement. Well, I can tell you as somebody who does nothing but placement, that being good at placement is insanely, insanely difficult. Just really hard. Doing a good job here is not easy. What this means is that there are far fewer educators than there should be, in my opinion. Because if education and placement are tied together, then being a good educator means you also have to be good at placement. And if placement's really hard and education is really hard, most companies are just set up to fail. So I really see placement as a complement uh, to future boot camps, right? In the future, what I'd like to see is far more people try their hand at education and stake their hats on their ability to educate you and partner with placement to help get their students placed, right? So they do the education, we do the placement, we figure out some economic situation that makes sense for the both of us, and people are far better off. Like, I think the world would do and be much better if there was more competition in education and if those educators were actually incentivized on driving outcomes. Now, this isn't going to give us the sort of liberal arts education that the university system was built around. It's going to give us vocational training. And, you know, frankly, I think that's okay. I think that liberal arts educations, I'm into it. I got one. I think they're great. I think most people don't need it. I think we have, you know, an entire K through 12 system that's intended to give people general education. And then after that vocational school really does do the trick. Well, I think it's, I think it's really interesting the way you laid that out. And that's actually quite candidly where my mind goes, which is, you know, one of the fundamental things um, that I find so interesting about your kind of doubled and tripled down focus on placement is when I look at the bootcamp space, um, there's really three buckets of things that they do, right? They have to be pros at admissions, they have to be pros at training and education, as you mentioned, and then pros at placement. And and I, I often wonder if, you know, we're 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 kind of trying to do like the Microsoft Suite Office approach uh, or Microsoft Office Suite approach, right? Whereas the real solution is to have hubs that really focus on admissions, fo- folks that really work, or hubs that really focus on training, and then, you know, companies like placement that really focus on placement. Um, when you think about it, and obviously you're you're much closer to it, um, you know, than folks that are listening, talk a little bit about why placement is so hard, right? Talk a little bit more about kind of the specifics or the mechanics that enforce, you know, that worldview of unbundling these these three elements as opposed to tethering them together. Mm-hmm. So to be clear, I do think that there will be schools or boot camps or whatever that have the full stack approach and are very successful in doing that. Um in the same way that, you know, there's the Harvards, the Stanfords, the, the UC Berkeley's of the world. There will also be those of, of vocational schools. There already is. Um, but beyond that, you know, for the longer tail, the ability, you know, the way that we're actually going to scale up the ability for millions of tens of millions of people to become educated. The, the placement side is really hard because one, you need a sufficient scale uh, to intrigue employers. And if you only have you know, if you have scale in a very hard to um, hard to attract talent or, or field, 
that's pretty good. So, you know, data science, engineering or software engineering, web apps, those types of things that historically was a, a very hard job to hire uh, people to do. And so companies are desperate to try whatever solutions are possible. And so, you know, those, those companies had a pretty good job with placement. But when you start talking about jobs where there's more competition and employers have more options, uh, they're just not lining up to talk to random new uh, schools or something like that. You know, if you send them talent, cool, maybe they're not going to listen to you. But if all of a sudden you start to be able to put together talent packages for them across many different jobs and at a scale that's actually interesting for them, um, your job just becomes much easier. So it's a business that makes a lot more sense at scale because it's just really hard to get employers engaged uh, unless you're making commitments to, to delivering specific outcomes for them. And, you know, most schools can't do that because the schools have the talent that they have. They can't go and, you know, get more talent uh, quickly. And so um, that's one challenge. The other part of, of education uh, placement that's really hard is, you know, some people are come out of the program trained and some people come out of the program not trained. And there's just no way around that. Some people are exceptional and some people are not. And as a boot camp, you actually are forced, obviously, to deal with all of them or attempt to deal with all of them. And so when you talk to people that work on the placement teams at boot camps, they spend 90% of their time on people who, uh, frankly, shouldn't be, <laughs> shouldn't be getting jobs because they, they didn't ultimately learn enough during the program, um, either as a result of the program or as a result of themselves. Uh, it depends on the situation, of course. Uh, but, you know, with us, we're able to, to be more picky because we're not making a commitment to teaching you a thing. We're just making you a commitment to get you a job that we think that you are currently capable of getting. And um, yeah, so our, our job is you know, slightly, slightly easier on that regard. Um, yeah, the other part is getting people coached through the process the other, you know, and, and actually knowing what works in a dynamically changing environment and also finding ways to get people to actually do the hard work of, of the job search when, when they do really need to do something. It's just a hard, you know, it's like a hard game of psychology. And this is all we do day in, day out, is figure out how do we motivate people? What parts of the job search process can we do? What parts of the job search process does the customer have to do? And how do we best motivate them to get those done uh, quickly? And, you know, yeah, that, there's just, it's a hard problem to, to, to solve. One of, the, one of the interesting things I find, and, and you've talked a little bit about this before, so I want you to expand on it, and I, and I agree with it, right, is kind of this idea of, you know, if you zoom out, and, and let's say the thesis is correct here, right, that unbundling is really the, the way that you drive the biggest impact. And so, you know, kind of the, the, the maniacal focus on placement specifically is, is key. And let's say you succeed at placing at scale, right? You've, you've kind of, you've talked about before how this broad approach, right, can really um, make America and the American economy more anti-fragile. And, and well, my understanding of that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding of that is you kind of, you have less of a, you know, almost haves and haves not type class, right? You have less income inequality, you have more liquidity, you have, you've increased mobility, you've increased earning power, you know, for folks. And then, you know, that, that goes downstream. You, you pull really a lot of communities up and families up by their bootstraps. Talk a little bit more about kind of that philosophical approach. And, and again, when you zoom out and really think about the, the business orientation around placement and, you know, insofar as you do succeed at scale, you know, what, what that can have, uh, what kind of impact that can have at a community or at a societal level. A hundred percent. The thing that we ultimately think about is how do we help people make the best decisions about the next step that they take? And then how do we help maximize the probability that that step that they attempt to take is successful? So most people are running job searches that optimize around a local minima, frankly, is people have a job that they mostly happened into. It was close or near. It was the first one that they had the opportunity to get an offer from. And then they sort of optimize around that. So for example, we, we worked with one guy who, who worked at a hospital as a receptionist. What you do at a hospital as a receptionist generates lots of different skills. You, you got to get good at customer service. You get good at interacting with uh, tech platforms. You have to figure out how to do prioritization and, and in some cases help uh, sub in for, for triage. When this individual went out to go get another job, they looked within a 20-mile radius around their house. They looked at hospitals that were looking for receptionists. 
because they just didn't know what other options to look at. Um, you know, when we work with somebody like that, we're not looking at hospital receptionists. We're looking at the bundle of skills that they've acquired and saying, look, bundle of skills that you've acquired turns out to actually be more valuable being an office manager at a tech company in Atlanta, for example. That might be one, 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 one transition path where a lot of the same skills are being used, but the person who's employing you has a much higher willingness to pay. And so in, in this regard, what we're basically doing is one, we're helping better allocate talent to the places that are demanding that talent um, and being willing and willing to pay a higher amount for it. And two, we're expanding the horizons of people to look at things that they didn't even know that they were a good fit for. Um, that I think is pretty incredible. The people who know about good opportunities right now tend to be people of privilege. For example, I grew up beneath the poverty line, which was fine. Being beneath the poverty line in America can be fine. It wasn't that big of a deal. But when I got to, to, to college, there was people all around me who were talking about something called iBanking and something called consulting and something called uh, startups. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I had never heard of any of these things. The fact that you know I had to go to an elite institution to learn about those things is somewhat shocking. And I think most people, and when I say most, I mean you know, largest number of people, really don't understand what options are available to them. And so we can't do it for everybody right now, but as we scale, we'd really like to help unlock opportunities for people and guide them towards skill acquisition that puts them on a path to, to have the best future. And to be honest, you know, one of the criticisms that we get is, well, it's not all about money. And that's true, but it is kind of about money because money and the amount of money that you're making is an indicator of how much value you're adding into the world because the, the world is asking you to do this thing. Um, and if you're making more money, it means that there's fewer other people that are able to do that same thing. And, you know, I think that that then also drives um, satisfaction in the workplace, right? You're getting paid what you think is fair. You feel like you're doing something that is valuable in the world and you're on a good trajectory. So yeah, I'm very excited and, and feel very fortunate to get to work on this every day. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I think it's, it's, it's definitely interesting when you kind of think about it from the framing of, and this is, you know, when you had talked about it, this is really what, you know, pushed my thinking of the, the just underlying core you know, societal impact um, that success at scale for a company like Placement can have. You know, we're obviously going through, you know, a global pandemic right now in COVID-19. Um, Mark Andreessen had, you know, this week, you know, his post, uh, it's time to build. I, I feel like it's going to be this decade's, you know, software is eating the world in, in terms of impact. Um, it certainly pushed, you know, anecdotally, many of the conversations I've had with founders have really been a push around, you know, what are the things that we think are going to change you know, in the world, uh, in a, in a post COVID-19 world. And I'm, and I'm curious, Sean, from your perspective, you know, how have your thoughts on talent allocation, uh, evolved, you know, given the situation that we're, we're going through, what are the elements you think get accelerated? And then, you know, what do you think fundamentally changes as, as we move past this time? Well, I, I think in, in this situation, everyone's just showing their biases and preaching what they secretly just hope will be the case. So I'll, I'll do the same. Um, you know, I think that there is poor governance in a lot of places throughout the country, in California in particular. Uh, San Francisco, even at a, at a more micro level, is actively hostile to the companies that generate all of the city's wealth. It, that wealth generates all of the other jobs, generates all of the, the good paying restaurant jobs. Um, and then it gets blamed for all of the housing problems, which it doesn't in fact cause. Uh, so what I think we'll see, what I hope we'll see, is that people all of a sudden are more flexible because perhaps they're unemployed, which is a, a, a real shame. And, and I would hope that they would not be unemployed uh, as opposed to this alternative future. But you know, not all bad things have to be cumulatively bad. There's silver linings. Um, people will be more flexible and will look outside of their sort of local region for new opportunities. Uh, as a part of that, I think that the shelter in place scenario has got companies uh, 
some exposure to remote interviewing, potentially even some comfort with remote interviewing, and even potentially comfort and exposure to remote work. So I think that there is some probability that more people will be working remotely than before. I think that there is some probability that more companies will be willing to conduct interviews remotely than before. Those things are, are both very good for placement. How that ties then into the flexibility side of things and the poor governance side of things is I would hope that people start to flock to places where real innovation is possible. So you just can't build in California. You can't do it. If you want to build something really interesting and neat and new, good luck, right? If you want to build a house in San Francisco, it's going to take you a couple of years. It's just an untenable place to, to, to be innovative uh, in the physical built world. Great place to be innovative in software because California hasn't totally figured out how to regulate that yet, but at some point they might. What I'd love to see is greater competition between regions for talent, not for big businesses, but for talent. And I think that placement has the opportunity to bundle up talent, bundle up job opportunities, and come to cities and say, look, I have all these people that would love to move to a city that does X, and nobody else is doing it. If you do it, we can bring all these high-value knowledge workers to your economy. There is well-known math that when you bring high-value knowledge workers to an economy, you get some number of barbers and butchers and grocers and other service economy workers, and those people make more money than they otherwise would. Here's a fun fact. If you work as a, basically a janitor, a cook, anything, at a Google, you make more money uh, than you would at any other company, and the delta in your income is almost as large as if you immigrated from some other place in the world to America. This to me is just like a fascinating fact, is that when you're a software engineer at a superstar firm, it is almost the same level of income change as migrating to America from the third world. Hmm. It's just fascinating. Um, yeah, it's just fascinating. So, yeah. Well, Sean, this has been a, this has been a really interesting conversation. And um, as I was mentioning to you, you know, offline, I've been following placement, you know, for quite a bit of time. So it was, it was a ton of fun having you on the, on the show and really excited to see, you know, the future of the company and, and how you guys grow. So thanks, you know, thanks again so much for making the time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been fun. Hopefully, um, hopefully our listeners enjoy.